this time the children are dismissed to the appropriate ministries. If you'll turn with me to Psalm 110, we'll continue on our, our tour of, of this psalm, our, our series on basic Christianity. It really has turned out to be, who is Jesus in these Old Testament pictures? And so last week we zoomed in on God's unchanging plan and person, that Jesus is the anchor for your soul. So hold fast to him who's holding on to you. And today we get to make sense of this mysterious figure of Melchizedek. And so pay close attention to verse 4 when we read it. Let's, uh, let's read this and pray. This is the word of our God. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the, wo- from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and given to us in love. Let's pray. Our Father and... All-powerful God, we we thank you that you are patient with our slowness to understand and that you are overwhelmingly merciful towards our sin, overflowing with your steadfast love for us. And so now as we look at this this, uh, strange passage, I pray you would draw us again into the wonder and joy of having Jesus be our priest forever, a priest who's better than Melchizedek. So teach us to take advantage of the gospel by faith, uh, to lean into the grace and be strengthened by, by all the gifts that Jesus has given us. In his name we pray, amen. So if I had to guess, uh, I'm guessing 99.9% of you didn't wake up this morning wondering about Melchizedek, right? contemplating the good news. Uh, No one screamed in excitement as we said his name. Uh, There is no little Melchizedek who's been (laughs) named. I've never met a Melchizedek. All right, you can call him little Melky. Just saying, just throwing it out there if you want to run with this. That's my goal. But, yeah, I say that in tongue-in-cheek, but but part of that is is missing out on the, the significance that Psalm 110 and the New Testament place on this guy that we've never heard of. We rarely talk about. Uh, that, that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, that you, can't, you, you will more understand who Jesus is when you understand who Melchizedek is and what he did. And so this is really what I want to convince you this morning, that even though Melchizedek is unfamiliar, that when you hear about Jesus being a priest forever, that's, that's what has drawn people, turned their lives upside down uh, for centuries because Jesus is both king and compassionate priest who pleads for sinners. And so, 
I want to ask four questions. I, I'm adding one to your outline because I realized I needed to start something. Why, why do we need a, a priest? Who is Melchizedek? What does Melchizedek teach about Jesus? And then how is this helpful? So it's, it's, it's pretty simple. We're going to ask this of Psalm 110. And if, you, if you're bookmarking in the Bible, we're going to need to go to Genesis 14 at some point and Hebrews 7. Um, so just have that floating in your head. So let's start with why do we need a, a, a priest, especially a better priest? And the hard part when you, when you are, say you're reading the Psalms and your devotions and you come to this place, so what Psalm 110 assumes is that you have the whole Bible story just packed in your brain. Uh, that you are doing what David had to do, which as king he was told to write a copy of the law for himself and read it every day. And so Psalm 110, talking about priests, says something shocking. If you are a Hebrew, it says something offensive. It's saying that God's plan to set up priests from the family of Levi through Moses, there's something wrong with it. We need something else. That the Messiah, when he comes, he's not going to be a priest like you're used to. He's going to be somebody different, like this guy Melchizedek. And I know, even as we talk about that, in, in our modern world, uh, we're so far removed from priests being everywhere, from sacrifices being a part of our daily life. There's, there aren't temples the way that there were in the ancient world. I mean, maybe if you grew up Catholic, you have some idea of what a priest does. But a Catholic priest is something different than an Old Testament priest. And so what is a priest? What, what, what do we, why did, why did pe- have people always said, I need somebody standing before me in the presence of God? Right, so Hebrews 5.1 says, here's what priests do. It's a good definition. Every high priest is chosen from among men to act on behalf of people in relationship to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That way they can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses. And so, why do you need a priest? Why, why has everyone in the, generally until this modern age, assumed we need someone to stand before us, to relate us to God? Well, this is what a priest did. He acted for broken, sinful, weak, flawed people to relate for them to a God that they cannot get close to. And even that priest was flawed himself, and so he needed sacrifices for himself. And so, even though this is foreign, I think we get the idea of, of how this works, right? Where do you turn when you have something wrong with your body? That you know something's wrong and you're not sure what it is, there's something off, you've got to go get it checked out. You turn to a doctor. Somebody who's higher than us, superior in knowledge, superior in wisdom, uh, in, in matters of the body, anyway. And we say, help me, fix me. There's something wrong, and we go get, we go get uh, tuned up, <laughs> so to speak. We say, help, heal me. I'm not whole. A priest is a similar idea where people realize, as they looked inside themselves, and said, something's off. I'm not right. Something is deeply wrong with me, and when I think about approaching God, it's terrifying. I'm not able to get God on my side by my own goodness, so I need someone to represent me. This was the, the system instituted by God in the Old Testament, is that he's communicating to everyone, you are flawed, you need a priest. 
you need to feel that something's off, go, go run to them and they will, they will usher you into the presence of God through gifts and sacrifices. All right? And so, just sit on that for a second. Right? You know when we are most aware of, of our not good enoughness, our, our sinful nature? Uh, that feeling of shame, of not being worthy? It's so often when we're in the presence of someone else who's doing better at what we think we ought to be able to do. <laughs> right? when, we, when we're in the presence of someone who is, we think is better at being human, we say, there's something wrong with me. I'm not there yet. I need help. That's when shame creeps in. That's when embarrassment creeps in. Um, feelings of inferiority. I mean, I imagine that's what happens every Sunday when, you, when we come in. Is and to some extent, we know we belong because we're a friendly bunch of people. But there's still those doubts. Am I doing enough for Jesus? You know, the pastor knows a lot about the Bible. I, I could never do that. You know, of, you're coming in exhausted because you've had a difficult week with family, with parenting, with your marriage. I mean, and then you're running into people who seem like they're further ahead. And I can feel my not good enoughness. That's all hyphenated. <laughs> it's feeling your sinful nature like we confessed in, our, in, our, in the Heidelberg. And this is why we need priests, because, I mean, if you think about it, this, we're constantly comparing ourselves to others. We don't feel right. And when it comes to relating to God, who is true, who is holy, who is infinite, who is utterly transcendent and above us, cannot compare ourselves to, we immediately crumble under his gaze when he turns and looks at you in love and says, how are you doing? All right, if we, in the presence of beauty, feel ugly, what about ultimate beauty? Or in the presence of someone who's more successful, what about the one who is perfect? Or in the presence of God's ultimate goodness, I mean, we feel bad. And so we say, someone shield me, someone stand in front of me, someone protect me. I'm not worthy, I need a priest. And that's, that's the attitude, the mindset of, of the, 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 the Old Testament. Everyone, because they are flawed, uh, because your check engine light is always on, and most of us tend to ignore it <laughs> until the whole dashboard lights up, uh, it's saying, we need a priest. We need someone to cover our weaknesses, our flaws, our sins, our not-good-enoughness, our guilt and our shame. And that's what the priests would do. They would take you into the presence of God. They would, they would literally go into the tabernacle and get a little bit closer to God than you have because they, they made sacrifices. They shed blood to bring you in. They represented you. Uh, Hebrews 7 kind of builds on this case of what a a priest would do. It's, it describes Jesus' priestly ministry as someone who makes intercession for us. And there's a sense where, yeah, he's praying for you, but he's also advocating for you. And, and that word has to do in Hebrews 7.25 with uh, someone like a lawyer. Someone who goes into the heavenly courtroom and starts to make arguments on your behalf. Someone to defend you. Someone to pl make pleas for you. Someone to do justice for you. Right? So you, we get that idea. You, Jesus, the priests were there to advocate, to pray, to offer gifts, to make sacrifices. That's what they did for, for flawed people. 
so that they could draw near to God to cover up that embarrassment of not being good enough. And so that's the point. The priests were there to stand in the gap uh, to cover our never good enoughness in the presence of holy God. The problem is when you read the Old Testament, um, the priests are jacked up too. You know, they, there's, sometimes it seems like they're a little further ahead and, and they care, but the message of the Old Testament is these priests are just like us. Uh, they too sucked at being human. <laughs> and it's, it's really sad because it's really in, sometimes an awful horrible ways. First Samuel opens with that. Eli the priest has two sons who are continually committing uh, adultery, having inappropriate relationships with women who serve at the temple or tabernacle. And so when you get to Psalm 110, right, if you don't have that story in your head that something's flawed with the priestly system, uh, it sounds even more strange that we need something better. And so what Psalm 110 is saying is something has to change when the Messiah comes. Because the priests show up every day, they sacrifice every day, and God's people are not changing. The law made no one perfect, as it says in Hebrews. The system was broken. Every, fleece, every priest was flawed. <laughs> every priest died, showing they were under the curse just like everyone else. And so I'm hoping you can see this. Psalm 110, verse 4, when God says, I, am, I swear and I will not change my mind, I'm going to send the Messiah. He will be a better priest. He's going to be like Melchizedek. What God is setting you up to long for is to, to, to have someone who represents you right next to God the Father in the, in the most important chair in the universe, the throne. And so if that priest is going to be better and he's going to be like Melchizedek, you have to say, well, who was Melchizedek? And so, if you read your Old Testament, you find him twice. That's it. There's one little paragraph in Genesis 14, and if you're reading for the first time, it's like, yeah, okay, I don't know who that is, and you just move on. And then you get to Psalm 110 and say, wait, that guy was important? And then you got nothing until Hebrews. But Hebrews spends half the book well, the whole book, really, just trying to argue, you need this priest who's like Melchizedek, Jesus. And so, turn to Genesis 14 with me, and I'll read it. <coughs> you see who this guy is. Why is he so great? So it's Genesis 14, verse 17. It says, After... Abraham's return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and all the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abraham at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And here's Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. <laughs> and so what do we know? We know that Melchizedek was a great man. Because Abraham met him after battle, after 
organizing a night raid with his, his own uh, Navy SEAL type, Hebrew SEAL type. Right, there's 318 men who, using guerrilla warfare, go to rescue Lot, who's been kidnapped, who's been a, become a prisoner of war. And Abraham and his men overcome an army that had previously been victorious. It's pretty impressive. And so just think about it this way. Over and over again, Abraham is held up as a hero of the faith. He is the great man in the scriptures. He's a biblical hero. He's God's friend. Um, Outside of Moses, it's hard to get much greater. Uh, There's no greater honor in a Hebrew's mind than to be a child of Abraham. That was their life, their delight. I, I am part of Abraham's family. God has spoken to Abraham and to me through him. And here in our story, Abraham ties to Melchizedek. Abraham, the inferior, is blessed by Melchizedek, the superior. In this passage, Abraham treats Melchizedek like he is this great man. And so this is really shocking because the the normal priest, right, for them to to meet their, their, um, make their living, God commanded them, commanded the people, tithe, right, support them. Abraham, without the law, without a command, uh, gives 10% of the spoils of war to Melchizedek, and he does it unbidden because he knows he's in the presence of someone greater. And then you have a blessing from the priest. I mean, part of what you're getting a picture is Melchizedek is treated like a greater figure than Abraham. Abraham received the promises of the Messiah to be a blessing according to the nations. Abraham comes to, in Melchizedek's presence from a place of humility. So, he's a great man. Melchizedek was also a king and a priest. And so Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. Uh, that means king who's really good. He's, he's a good guy. And he was the king of Salem, which is another name for Jerusalem. And Salem comes from the Hebrew word shalom, uh, which means peace. Uh, so, Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and a king of peace who rules in Jerusalem and he does all things well, as far as we can tell. He's he's pictured as a person who is worthy to be a king and a priest. I mean, just imagine in our... There are two things people don't want to talk about in public. They don't want to talk about politics and religion. Imagine in our current system, a, a U.S. president having... Uh, not only political power and authority, but also spiritual power and authority. You know, we separate those things because nobody is worthy to hold those two together. It's too much power and influence in one person. In Israel, that's why it was forbidden. The kings and priests were separate. Because nobody is good at being human, so let's, let's hold each other accountable. And so just imagine the quality of person that Melchizedek must be to hold, to be both a king and a priest and still be called righteous. <laughs> I mean, he's a picture that when nobody else is following God Most High in a corrupt, in an unbelieving pagan part of the world, you know, Melchizedek is being faithful. Right. And then, as a priest, this is what Melchizedek does. 
he pronounces a blessing. He brings bread and wine to nourish Abraham. And it's, a, it's not just any blessing. It's a blessing from God Most High. He worships the same God as Abram. And so Abraham has God's promise to make him a blessing confirmed, sealed to him, so to speak, by Melchizedek. Abraham tasted bread and wine and, and heard God saying, I will keep my promises to you. I'm going to make you great. You're blessed. And the proof is you, you were victorious over your enemies. And so you have this picture of Melchizedek, who's an extraordinary man, who's a king and a priest, and then he's extremely temporary because we never hear from him again. Right? If he's so great, why don't we hear anything else? Who were his parents? Where did he come from? Where was he born? Where did he die? Hebrews 7.3, which is where we're going to turn to, highlights this. It's just the way the story told. He just shows up like a flash of lightning and disappears. He's without father or mother. He has no genealogy in the book of Genesis, which is filled with genealogies. We don't hear about his beginning of days nor his end of the life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So we, we don't hear anything about his birth or death. Some people have wondered if he's, he's a celestial being or if he's Jesus come down ahead of time. And, but seven, Hebrews 7.4, you can turn there. Uh, it, it tells you he's just a man. He's human. He's a king and a priest. He was born like us. He died like us. And because he disappeared, he, he too was under the curse. But what the writer of the Hebrews is doing in Hebrews chapter 7 is just commenting on this great, this great person. Who is Melchizedek? Well, it's, it's almost like he came from before time and the way the story is told, and he's going to last forever because we hear nothing about him. And so it just sets, it's a storytelling technique. And that's, that's what the writer of the Hebrews wants you to see, that, that Melchizedek sets the pattern for what the Messiah would be. That's the idea. It's a pattern. It's a type. He was temporary, but it gets you to imagine someone so great who could be worthy to be God's king and a priest together from before the beginning, who is forever, who will never die, who has an indestructible life, who is righteous, who will be able to give you peace, who will be able to stand in God's presence and make pleas for you, even as he goes to fight for you and put all of God's enemies under his feet. So Melchizedek, a great man, king and a priest, he's temporary, but it's setting you up to see him as a mold or a pattern of what Jesus would be like. And that's what Psalm 110 is about, that the Messiah will be like that guy. The Messiah will be like Melchizedek. So just imagine what it would be like to have someone cover up your not-good-enoughness as a priest forever. That's the hope of Psalm 110. Now, what does Melchizedek teach us about Jesus? From, this is from Hebrews 7. Right? He resembles what Jesus would look like. And so, picture snow. This is a simple way to picture what a type is. Uh, Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Right? It's not like they had snow in the Middle East. But you can imagine, this is what happens. You, when you make a, an, a lay, just lay down in the snow, you make an impression. And it looks like a human being was there. And you can get a general idea, of vaguely, of what that's like. Right? So what... 
what Genesis 14, what Psalm 110, and God is telling you is God left a Melchizedek-shaped impression in history, in the snow, so to speak, to say, look for somebody like that who's, who's a king and a priest. So the second thing we see is Jesus is a priest forever. Someone like Melchizedek. Someone who's going to be a priest forever has to be indestructible. Death has to be overcome. Every, every other priest has died, never to be seen from or heard from again. And so when Melchizedek is a priest and disappears, it's setting you up to long for somebody for whom death will not conquer. And so you got, if you combine these images, you have Jesus, the Messiah, who's a king who's sitting next to God on the throne. You know, whoever sits on that throne in Psalm 110 must be worthy. He must be a king of righteousness. And then in verse 4, a priest forever sitting next to God's right hand, the same person. He's there forever representing our weaknesses, our flaws. Jesus is that priest. So Hebrews 7.15, this is how they apply all this stuff. This is how the writer of the Hebrews talks about Melchizedek. He says, this becomes more evident when when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it's witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's quoting Psalm 110. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The former priests were many, in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's a lot there, but here's what the writer of the Hebrews is claiming about Jesus for you. He's telling you the gospel. He's telling you that there is no way you can ever fix that relentless feeling like you're always on trial, like you're never good enough, constantly trying to prove yourself to get into God's presence. You can't fix your weaknesses on your own. Everybody dies. Everybody is flawed. I'm not good enough. You aren't good enough. Nobody's good enough to get into the presence of God, but God swore and will not change his mind to bring you into his presence through a priest forever named Jesus. To represent you. And so, I know Hebrews 7.25, he lives to make intercession for you. We kind of get the picture of like, Jesus sitting on the throne, and, and I, I'll use myself as an example. He pulls out the Nate file, and Nate's really blown it today, and Jesus is there interceding and saying, God, you know, have mercy. Again, have mercy. Again. He's a poor, weak soul. I like him. Sure, he's not great, but here's, here's some good reasons to keep him around. You know, like, like you see on the TV shows in a courtroom. They make arguments on why, why you should be let off the hook. And, you know, Jesus, he's good at arguing, so it's good for me. <laughs> 
I mean, and that's kind of my, my understanding of intercession originally as I just started to process the claims of the gospel is Jesus is praying for me. That's a good thing. But if he is your advocate, it's much more secure and solid than that. Because he is a better priest. He's a priest forever. He's a priest with nail-pierced hands doing what the other priest couldn't do. He doesn't have to offer sacrifices daily, and that's what I picture Jesus doing for me. He doesn't have to do that. He died once for all when he offered himself up for me and for you. He is a son who has been made perfect forever. And so here's the picture. Here's how Jesus intercedes for Nate and for you, if you're in, in Christ. God just looks at me through Jesus, the Jesus lens. That's it. Jesus is my advocate. He is my justice. He is my life. All my flaws, all my faults, all my moral warts and all are all hidden in him because he's the priest and because he is beautiful, because he is holy. God doesn't see them. His presence advocates for me. And he did that once for all by giving up his perfect self. And because Jesus advocates for me, this is how he does it. God, you can't punish him. It's been paid. It's forgiven. So Jesus' presence as the priest who represents you, who represents me, who lived the perfect life, who died the perfect death in love, was raised from the dead and now ascended into heaven and, and is the priest forever, like Melchizedek, who is both a king ruling, but he's also the compassionate one, who is your argument, who is your plea, who is able to save you to the uttermost because you cannot get any closer to God than the one who's sitting at the right hand. And because he is your priest forever, you can run to him at any time. You can have assurance that he will hear you, and you can have assurance that he will help you, and that he knows what everything you are going through is like because this priest was human. That's why I'm saying all along, Psalm 110 hides the Apostles' Creed, right? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, descended into hell, and the third day he rose again and ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty as your priest forever. Run to him. How is this helpful? We're going to taste it in a moment. But you know who Hebrews is written to? People ready to tap out on Jesus. People who are exhausted, people who are miserable, tired of being treated like dirt, tired of, tired of being treated like second-class citizens because they're Jesus followers, tired of disagreeing with their family because they see the world differently through Jesus' lens, tempted to go back to doing whatever it was they were doing before as, as good Jews. And the argument is, why would you ever leave Jesus, the priest forever, who makes you righteous. Jesus is better than anything you can find in this world to cover up your failures, your not good enoughness. So here's how it's helpful, and then we'll, we'll come to the table. Right now, you are advocated forever by faith, by Jesus who sits at God's right hand. This forever priest, um, 
is telling you a better story than you could ever tell, tell yourself. <laughs> because you're going to wake up Monday and, and try and prove yourself again. Because you're a sinner. And this is calling you to stop doing that. And to look at the right hand of God. Uh, to look at the one who has forever removed your guilt. Because his presence is right there in heaven. And I know that's what happens. You never feel good enough. And that's the story you wake up with on Monday. I have to prove myself again. Not in the gospel. So you're told Monday morning, tomorrow, and every day for the rest of your life, wake up, see the story that is true about you and Jesus, look that your guilt has been removed forever, find ways to preach this truth to yourself, to beat it into your head continually, (laughs) that though the accuser roars of all the ills that you have done, say, I know them well, and thousands more, but my God, he knows none, because my, my priest is advocating for me. It's gone, forgotten. No more guilt. Second, this is even better, you're, you're forever adorned or clothed uh, in the beauty of Jesus, your priest. If Jesus is your perfect priest forever in heaven at God's right hand and he sees you through Jesus, when, when God in Christ looks at you, your priest who's advocating, representing you, he sees the perfect Savior. He sees the beauty of a high priest, the beauty of holiness, the beauty of perfection. He sees someone whole. He sees you as perfect, beautiful, and holy in Jesus, as, as a great person, as someone who does not stink at being human. Because right? this is what the high priest would do. They would go into the holy of holies to look at the right hand of God with an empty chair, the mercy seat. And they were decked with the colors of heaven, and they had precious jewels on their chest and this, this vest that they wore. And on the jewels were engraved the names of the tribes of Israel, the names of God's people. And so the priest, adorned with beauty, the beauty of holiness that he did not have of himself, would go into God's presence once a year, But now you have Jesus there all the time, who is actually perfect, who has your name engraved on him, like precious jewels. So Jesus is your better priest because the only thing that will overcome that misery you feel, because I did it again, (laughs) that I'm not good enough, your shame, the only thing that overcomes shame is praise. And that's what you have forever in your high priest, if you would come to him. You learn that those who look to the Lord are radiant, as it says in the Psalms. Third, last thing, and this leads us to the table, you're forever blessed. Melchizedek is the picture of this. Melchizedek, it seems, it's really strange that he, he would have bread and wine, which is what we're we're going to come to the table with. The Abraham, when he was worn out, when he was exhausted, uh, anxious, and afraid, made these guys going to come back and get me? Did I miss anyone? Uh, see, we have Christians that have someone better than Melchizedek, the king and priest, who blesses us with everything I just told you, that we are loved, that we are cherished, we are protected, we are blessed of God Most High, given a great name through faith, And you can taste it as you eat bread and wine to calm your anxious soul. And what it does is it seals the truths 
that your sins are forgiven, you're not goodness, good enoughness covered. <laughs> and Jonathan Edwards would say, the bread and wine to Abraham signified the same blessings of the covenant of grace that we get in the Lord's Supper. It's a seal of God's promise. You belong to him now. You are mine. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So, to get Jesus as your priest forever, you come in faith and say, I have nothing to bring. The only thing I have is my, my need. And that's what we're going to do. But when you do that, what happens is you, you will hear heaven's condom, commendation, praise, through Christ. Because God, is, God said to Jesus, as my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, we get to hear that good news through the blessing of bread and the cup. Only this time we know it was earned for us by a better high priest through the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body. So come to Jesus, the better high priest, who's your priest forever, and you will be radiant. Let's pray. Father, we, we looked at this picture of Jesus being our king and our priest, and I pray now that what we have seen by faith we will taste and that uh, as we come to the table, you will nourish our souls. Um, you will heal some of our anxieties, our fears, and our questions and our doubts that you truly do love us in Christ. And so change us and meet with us as we come to your table, we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite the elders to come forward. So we are coming to receive the blessing of God Most High given to us through Jesus, through his broken body and his shed blood. Uh, it's a meal, as I said, for the nourishment of your weary soul, uh, to give you strength to keep going, to not turn back, to not turn away. And so this is not Hope Church's table. This is Jesus' table. It's not for the perfect. It's, we welcome all Christians who have turned from their sin to trust and follow Jesus, their king and their priest, who, are, who fellowship regularly with uh, churches who proclaim the same gospel. You're, you're, you're connected to Jesus' followers. You're not on your own. So if that is you, come. Come. And if it's not you, watch, listen. Think about Jesus who would be willing to represent you to a holy God, and he knows you through and through. And then come talk to us. We'd love to talk to you about what, what difference Jesus will make in your life. Well, hear the words of institution. For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's for the remission of sins. Uh, do this as, oft, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jim, would you pray for us?
So wait, we'll eat together. Bought and paid for you by Christ's broken body. Taste and eat. So the cup reminds us that Jesus, in his life and in his death, he was a priest uh, who, who purchased our forgiveness forever. So we're tasting of that here in a moment. But it also is telling us where we're traveling to. Uh, it's a, a foretaste of the new creation, the day when all of creation will be healed and you will never again feel inferior. <laughs> I mean, just imagine waking up every, every day and never having shame or embarrassment, uh, never having to, to hold down your head. Uh, we're getting a taste of that right now. Because Jesus will be our king of righteousness and our peace and we will flourish and everything will be made new and every eye will see that our world will belong to God. Our hurts will be healed and our teardrops will be dry. And that, that's the hope we're tasting as we look back to what Jesus did uh, to give it to us. And so until then, we, we drink now tasting his pleasure and rejoice in God's promise kept.
Let us drink of the promise kept in Christ's blood. Lord, we have tasted and we have seen that you are good and that those who look to you shall be radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. And so I pray you would remind us, change our hearts, so that as we follow Jesus, our King and our Priest from here, uh, we would go forth uh, rejoicing, committed yet again to the one who was wholly committed to us, um, living out uh, as a people ready to do the good works that you planned before the foundation of the world for us to do. So as we have gotten a taste of the new creation, may we go forth here uh, giving that experience to others. And so do more in us than we can ask or imagine if we have tasted of the height and, and depths and the length and the width of the love you have for us in Christ Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. We're going to respond uh, like Abraham, <laughs> taking up tithes and offerings so the gospel may go forward. And so I invite the ushers to come forward. While we sing our last song, I need you, uh, we're going to take up a diaconal offering, and so I'll invite the diaconal ushers to come forward. But this goes to meet the physical needs of those in our, in our immediate church family and as well as in the community.
Lord, I come, I confess, bowing dear, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that's my Now may God the Father, who sent Jesus to be your King and Priest forever, who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before His presence, the presence of His glory, may He hold you fast. Go now as witnesses of the risen Jesus, unashamed and radiant in Him. Amen. Amen.